and a prayer before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing of serving the King. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would help us to see what your prophet John the Baptist spoke of so long ago. Help us to direct our thoughts and minds tonight. Amen. Well, we're in the uh, second Sunday of Advent. The season of looking forward to the coming of Jesus the Messiah. If you were with us last week, I think you were probably, like me, challenged by Mark to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. The challenge is, of course, are we ready for that event when the whole of history will change, when daily life as we know it will change? So we're looking towards the future. What are we looking for? Christmas, perhaps. Perhaps the end of term. Perhaps parties. I know what my students are at school. They're looking forward to all of that. Okay, they're looking for the physical rather than the spiritual. But looking forward is important, isn't it? Because it often sets the way we think, whether we're optimistic or whether we're pessimistic. Well, in the Old Testament of the Bible, we read of many promises made by God to the, his people, the Jews. We have the promises, don't we, of a land for them to live in, a promise of a personal relationship with their God, the promise of a Messiah who will lead them out of slavery into freedom. And these promises were brought to the people by special men of God, prophets, and at the time of this passage we got in front of us this, this evening, Matthew's Gospel, it's 400 years since God has directly spoken to the people through a prophet. Now, in anyone's idea, I'd have thought 400 years is a long way to wait, long time to wait for the word from the Lord. I mean, put it into our context, that's about 1610, somewhere around about the time of the fire of London. That's an awful long time ago to wait for the Lord to speak. And as a result of this, the religious leaders of the Jews have great power because they intercede for the people and they preach the teaching of the law. And so these great teachers of the Jews provide a moral standard by which people have to live. And they provide a way for, to God for the people. And therefore, they're very powerful people. And they will come into our account tonight. So please turn in your Bibles to page 967 as we look at what John the Baptist says. Because here comes John. John, the son of Zechariah, a priest. He's a relative of Jesus. And he has chosen to live away from the centres of power, which are the cities. He lives in the desert, a place where people go for spiritual insight and refuge. So if we have the first picture, thank you. A picture of the desert. Deserts, of course, are barren places. They are difficult locations. They are remote. They're away from popular culture. And they're often chosen by people who want to be away from those things. And it's from this situation that this man, John, recognised as a prophet by Jesus in Matthew 11, someone who speaks God's word comes from. We read in verse 4 that he's very distinctive. You couldn't mistake him for anybody else. 
his garments are what we would probably call not cool. They're rather weird, aren't they? Who would want to wear a camel skin? He wears a belt made of leather. And he has a very distinctive diet, doesn't he? He eats locusts and honey. So what's he doing? Why is it written like this? Well, in 2 Kings 1.8, we read a reference of a man who also wore skins and a belt. And that man was the great prophet Elijah, a very distinctive figure who was not afraid of speaking the message of God. If you remember back to that occasion, Elijah on Mount Carmel calls the people of Israel to make a decision to follow their God. And the point is here that John likewise is calling the people to repent, to follow God and to await for the coming of the Messiah who will also call people to follow him. So what of this man John then? Well we read in verse 1, don't we, that he's been preaching. And I would like to suggest to you he must have been a very powerful preacher because we read that people came out to hear him, including the religious leaders and Pharisees. And I would like to suggest to you tonight that he's at some cost to the people because they had to walk some distance from Jerusalem to actually get there. They didn't have four by four, you know, land rovers to go across the desert as we did at that time. They had to walk. So it's at some cost to go and hear that man. And the time when John was preaching is a period of intense ferment. People of the time were unhappy with the Romans and with the extravagant Herod who ruled through the Romans. And so there was an expectation of change in the culture of the time. Perhaps a new prophet would come. Perhaps there would be the coming of the Messiah as promised by the prophets of old. And so as I was thinking about this, it reminded me a bit perhaps of in our society when we have new politicians coming to power. There's an expectation that things will change, that the new party who are now in power will bring changes to our lives. And so we know this happened, didn't we, a few months ago when the coalition took over from Labour. And so when John started teaching in the desert, the people flocked out to hear him. But what of this man, John? Where did he get his authority from? Well, his authority is given by Matthew in verse 3 by reference to the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And so Matthew identifies John the Baptist with the prophecy that the Jewish people would have known of. And so in our passage this evening, there's recorded three aspects of John's preaching. The need for repentance, the need for witness, and the pointing towards the coming of the one who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And so, the first point tonight is the need for repentance. The need for repentance. John came out of the desert and preached the need for repentance. Now, repentance, of course, is a very important word. At its simplest form, it means being sorry for something. But it's actually a lot stronger than this because repentance involves not only being sorry but acknowledging that wrong has been done and that you are turning around 180 degrees from the action and going in the opposite direction that you are sorry for. So repentance 
that John is using here acknowledges that wrong has been done before God and an action of change is needed. And there must be both paths to it. If you're sorry for it, but there's no change in behaviour, then there's no real biblical repentance. If there's change of behaviour, but no acknowledgement of wrongdoing, there is no repentance either. And of course, this was the basis of the Old Testament Jewish faith. The people sinned before their God, and they had to go to the priest to sacrifice animals for that sin, so that that sin could be wiped out before God. And here in verse 6, John is stating that the people must recognise their moral situation, repent of it, and then demonstrate this by being baptised, by being submerged into the waters of the Jordan. Now, of course, the baptism of this occasion was symbolic. It was a symbolic action. The people went to the River Jordan... John dipped them completely, submerging them into the water, a symbol of them being washed clean by the water, and then they came out of the water, a symbol of new life being started. However, John recognised that this was symbolic, that in fact the water had no power to make them clean or new. So he calls upon them to repent, and it's the repentance that's the important thing. And to show that this is genuine, they must show practical aspects of change in their lives. Look at verse 8. Look what he says. John says, produce fruit in keeping with the repentance. In other words, actions speak louder than words or symbolic religious actions. John also confronts another common excuse made by people who don't see the need for repentance. That is, religious tradition. The religious leaders of the time were keen on relying upon their religious heritage and history for justification of their moral situation. They were a part of God's people and God's historical promises. But John shows how God's promises of a promised people relies upon the spiritual action of repentance and a relationship with him. We see this, don't we, in verses 9 to 10. And so the question that came to my mind was, well, do we do the same thing? Are we in danger of doing this, of using excuses rather than repenting? Do we rely upon our our heritage? We've been brought up in a Christian community, a Christian family. We've gone to church on a regular basis. We belong to a Christian country, so we don't need to have a personal faith in Jesus based upon his death on the cross for us. Well, John calls the people to repent. And he calls them to repentance by warning of them of the wrath to come. The judgment that will follow and the way of the, peop- the people of God will be cut down. Look at verses 7 to 10. John points to the fact that sinfulness leads to practical actions and that in turn must lead to God passing judgment on those who fail to turn away from their sin and worship him. Now, this is a really important point, isn't it? And we need to acknowledge this in our own lives, in our community and land today. We think in our society, the people we know at work, perhaps the people we love and, find and, and we know and are, we care for, these people find it very difficult to understand and accept 
And so the first point that John brings out to us is the need for repentance, which includes turning back to God in a practical way. Well, the second thing that John says to us, if my voice lasts, is the, uh, the message of that we need to have a personal witness. We need a personal witness. The people went out to John, who instructed them to repent of their sins. Repentance could be seen as something that happens between a person and God, within the privacy of a closed room or a closed heart. But this repentance that John spoke of wasn't a private action that could be done in a closed room. No, they were called to repent in their hearts and minds and actions and then display this by going into the river and being publicly baptised. The baptism was a public demonstration of what had happened in their hearts. It's symbolic. It shows what they've done. It shows that they've repented and therefore needs to be seen by others who are in their community. But this baptism in itself has no power to stop them sinning again. And so John points the people to the Messiah, who does have the power to forgive, the power to send his spirit into the lives of his followers. And so the third point that John brings is the pointing to the Messiah. Look at verse 11. John points them towards the one who will have the power the power to overcome sin, the power to give them life. He, of course, is to be a pure person because John states that he's not fit even to carry the dirty, lowliest garments, the sandals of this person. Sandals, of course, in those days would have been very dusty. If you've been to Africa, you'll know that. You get incredibly dusty and dirty and smelly. And uh, John says he's not even able to carry these things of the coming Messiah. And John states, using the imagery of baptism again, in contrast to his baptism of water, which doesn't last, it's a one-off symbol, this man will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's really important that we realise the significance of this. The Spirit of God, we're told in the Bible, has always been involved in the creation and regeneration of the world. Think of Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God went across the oceans. Think of the Spirit of God being involved in bringing God's messages to his people throughout the prophecies. Think of God's Spirit being involved in bringing in the fruits of the Spirit in believers' lives. The Spirit of God is life. It's ongoing. It's ever-living. It's not a one-off symbolic occasion. No, the baptism of the Spirit will bring life will bring change. It has the power to transform lives. And in this passage, in this verse, John also adds fire. The Spirit of God is fire. We have the same imagery, don't we, in the account of the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples in Acts 2, verses 3 to 4. Tongues of fire descending upon the disciples in that room. Now, fire, of course, burns up the waste. It's a cleansing action. And so this baptism of the Spirit will be life-giving, life-cleansing, and a challenge. And so John states that the person, what is to bring this, is near you and is yet to come. So John's prophetic utterance in verse 3 is the link 
in the Old Testament, through the Old Testament of God's plan of salvation for his people, the Jews. John is proclaiming that the man to follow him is greater than him. He is the one that the Jews have been waiting for, the one that the prophets spoke a long time ago. Now that's all very well. And you might say, well, you know, that's history. What has this got to do with us today? Well, I think it's got three things for us today. What's it mean to us today? Well, I think if we don't know who Jesus is or what relevance Jesus has in our lives, this passage is a really good place to start our search for who Jesus is. Because this passage, this, this words of John, is a link between the old world of the Jewish faith and God's promises with the new world of Jesus and his promises. And secondly, the second thing that's important to us is that we need, we need to understand the need for repentance, don't we, in the lives of mankind, which of course involves us as well. The need for mankind to admit their wrongdoing before God. The need for a complete change of behaviour to bear the fruits of repentance, which is made possible by the work and power of the Holy Spirit, if we only ask Jesus for it. It's Jesus' gift to us, the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring that upon us. Because remember, God doesn't expect man to change by his own efforts but he has provided the way of change through the power of Jesus' death on the cross and the gift of his Holy Spirit. And then thirdly and lastly, the importance of witness that we have repented and that we have received God's Holy Spirit and we are relying upon Jesus' death for our salvation. In the New Testament, with times after the death of Jesus, people who came to faith and repented often were baptised straight away after their witness of conversion. They didn't seem to need to wait a long time for this, but it was vitally important to them to show the world that they lived in, that they had changed from the old life to the new life of following Jesus. And baptism gave them this opportunity because it was usually done in public, in a local river or a local lake or sea. And it's only been in times of organised religion where buildings have been built to carry this out in that stops the general public as a whole from witnessing this profession of faith. Now I know there have been times and places when baptisms have occurred outside and perhaps this is something that we should encourage within our church during the summer months as a witness to the community in which we live. And so... This is what we've got tonight. John proclaims the coming of Jesus. John proclaims the coming of Jesus. Let us, this Advent time, be sure who Jesus is. Let's repent and let's witness to the world in which we live, in the way we go live our lives and what we say and what we do, the power and authority of the Son of Man who came 2,000 years ago to bring us salvation. Amen.